Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Lauren Horn Griffin, and I'm a host of the channel and assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Louisiana State University. Today, we'll be talking to Kathleen Sprose Cummings, who is the Reverend John A. O'Brien Collegiate Professor in the Department of American Studies and History, as well as the director of the Cushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism at the University of Notre Dame. She is the author of A Saint of Our Own, How the Quest for a Holy Hero Helped Catholics Become American, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. In this book, she asks what drove U.S. Catholics in their arduous quest for an American saint. A homegrown saint, she argued, would serve as a mediator between Catholicism and American culture. Throughout much of U.S. history, the making of a saint was about the ways in which members of a minority religious group defined, defended, and celebrated their identities as Americans. She shows how these arguments for their canonization represented evolving national values as Catholics made themselves at home. Cummings' vision of American sanctity shows just how much Catholics had at stake in cultivating devotion to men and women perched at the nexus of holiness and American history until they finally felt little need to prove that they belong. Kathy, welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies. Thanks, Lauren. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, before we dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to study saints and U.S. culture? What led you to this type of analysis, departing perhaps from other scholarship on saints, at least in the U.S. context? Well, my first book was on Catholic women in the United States. So I had done a lot of research and present at a lot of venues foregrounding the historical work of Catholic sisters. And most of the American saints at the point when I started thinking about this book were women who were members of religious communities. And in 2006, I was teaching a class called Gender and American Catholicism. And I'm always looking for ways to, as we all are, to make things relevant to our students. So I knew from a friend of mine who was a sister of Providence, which is a community in Southern Indiana, that their founder, Mother Theodore Guerin, was being canonized. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I didn't know anything about canonization um, except, you know, just what I learned in Catholic school. Um, I knew what saints were, but I, I didn't really think about that, never really thought about the process. So I called my friend and I said, is there someone who could come and visit my class and just kind of talk about what that's like to you know, work toward a cause for canonization. And she said, oh, yes, Sister Marie Kevin is Mother Theodore's vice postulator, and she would love to come and talk to your class. Well, I had no idea what a vice, I had no idea what any of that meant. I had no idea that St. Mary of the Woods, which was the college Mother Theodore founded, was like five hours away. And Sister Marie Kevin was in her 80s. And, and so sure enough, she came and spoke to my class and told this wonderful story. Mother Theodore actually is not in the book very much, but it really did all kind of start with her. So I'm glad I have this chance to talk about her a little bit. But uh, Sister Marie Kevin talked about how Mother Theodore had come to Indiana as a French missionary in 1840, which was actually two years before 
Father Edward Soren founded the University of Notre Dame, and, and she was kind of an ally and a friend of his and helped helped him when he and the other members of the Congregation of Holy Cross um, arrived in the United States. They also had a common nemesis in the Bishop of Vincennes, um, who insisted that he had control over their finances and their assignments of personnel and things like that. He was wrong. That was all under Rome, but it didn't matter. <laughs> so Father Soren solved the problem by traveling further north to where Notre Dame is now, but Mother Theodore was there. And, and really, the bishop made her life terrible. Um, at one point, locked her in his room for a period of 24 hours, um, unless she agreed to kind of do what he said. Um, and he was going to, he threatened her with excommunication. So she was literally packing her bags to start over again in the Diocese of Detroit when word arrived, <laughs> word arrived from Rome that the bishop was retired. So he left, she stayed. And I just thought, you know, this was a class on gender and Catholicism, and, and we think about what it means to be a Catholic woman and, you know, the image of Catholic women as obedient. So I just loved this story of here's a woman who was almost excommunicated for disobedience, and she was going to be a canonized saint. So that's kind of where it all started. I, I can say a little more about that, but that's where I started teaching um, teaching about the saints, and that's where I realized the canonization was an absolutely fascinating process full of surprises. Wow, what a great story. I love that it sort of grew out, grew out of your classroom experience, too. So you focus there on um, sort of gender and Catholicism and women's saints in particular. What do you think it says that seven out of the 12 or 13 U.S. saints are women? Is that odd or expected in your view? No, I think that's one of the marvelous things about canonization. A few years after that, um, that after Mother Theodore's canonization in 2006, the first member of the Congregation of Holy Cross, which is the congregation that runs Notre Dame, was canonized a saint. Um, not even the founder was canonized. He was a brother from Montreal, Brother Andre Bassett, and was virtually virtually illiterate. And just this marvelous, here it's a teaching congregation that runs an elite university and, and several universities. And yet the first member to be so honored is this person who could barely read and write. So I think canonization, not always, but it has the potential to really flip the script sometimes to, um, to give power to people who otherwise don't have power. And that's certainly true in the American case when it comes to representation of women. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. So the main question of the book is how can and did a U.S. saint or the campaign for one uh, serve as a mediator between Catholicism on one hand and American culture on the other? Can you detail for us here a bit, as you do in the book, on why those two things, Catholic and American identities, had to be negotiated? Sure. The first part is the, the Catholic part and why U.S. Catholics wanted a saint of their own. Um, by 1870, there were 16 men and women from south of the Rio Grande who were recognized as saints by the church, but not a single cause was open in either the United States or Canada. So it was really a, a saintly inferiority complex. They believed it wasn't because of any lack of holiness on the part of U.S. Catholics, but uh, a lack of resources that they had been so busy building um, churches and erecting dioceses and responding to social needs, that they didn't have time for the comparative luxury of pursuing a saint's cause. And so uh, it was about it was about recognition. And this really came home to me. I actually attended Brother Andre Bassett's canonization in 2010. Um, I was there as, as part of the Notre Dame delegation, and we were all waving Canadian flags, and it was all very festive. I had, an, I had expected a very solemn event, um, and I was 
I was wrong. It was a big celebration um, in St. Peter's Square. But um, saints are rarely canonized alone. um, Canonization is such an elaborate process. There's usually like five or six of them. And there's almost always an Italian in the mix because they have home field advantage. Um, But that day, there were 13,000 people in the square celebrating the canonization of Mother Mary MacKillop, who became the first saint canonized from Australia. So 13,000 Australians traveled halfway across the globe to attend this. And I was sitting there watching them at the moment that she was named a saint. And, you know, they were just, they were cheering and waving their Australian flags. And it really hit me how validating it was. I mean, this was in 2010, but it got me thinking about, wow, this is what it must have been like in 1946 when Francis Cabrini was named the first U.S. citizen to become a saint. And so um, that's that's how I really came to understand that. What I learned later after I began my research is that it wasn't just about emphasizing that holiness was incarnated on American soil too. Um, Canonization is really, when you take out all the holiness part, it's really just about marketing. It's about who's the saint that meets the moment. Who's the saint that that can send a message? And we often learn more about the people promoting the saints than we do about the men and women themselves. So what I learned about Catholics in the late 19th century was that, yes, they wanted the Vatican to say there has been holiness in the United States too, but they were also acutely aware that in promoting the causes of these mostly missionaries who had not only um, evangelized but helped in their words, build and settle and civilize a continent, they were making the case that Catholics had been in North America from the earliest days, from the very beginning. So they hoped that they could weave through these saintly stories, they could weave Catholicism into the American fabric more completely at a time when many American Protestants thought Catholics couldn't be American. Mm. Yeah, you talk a lot about the um, kind of shaping of sainthood, the conversation between Catholics and Protestants. Um, How much do you think um, U.S. relationship, U.S. Protestantism and U.S. history and the relationship between Catholics and Protestants shape these um, kind of state-seeking campaigns? First of all, Protestants were fascinated by the sainthood process, Um, even though, you know, when I first pursued this thread, I actually ran across um, a reference to the opening of Elizabeth Ann Seton's cause um, in 1882, and and, uh, Cardinal Gibbons of Baltimore had actually said, we need to open her cause so it, it can help Catholics seem more American. And I, I thought to myself, I was in the archives and I'm thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I mean, saints are what made Catholics weird and, and different and un-American, but there was something to it. And um, so Protestants were fascinated by the story, uh, the story of saints and by the process. And one of the fun things in my research is I was always finding like like fake news headlines because they would report, you know, Bishop Newman canonized today in Rome when in fact all that had happened was just a a stage in the process had been reached, a stage in a very long process, but Protestants didn't understand the process. Catholics didn't understand the process very well either, but it was always mistaken for that. So, um, so yeah, I think there was, um, it did help that, um, it did help that it was a subject that was fascinating. It was also, if you think about the 19th century and grand tours of Europe becoming more accessible. So American Protestants actually had more exposure to 
European saints and, and to Italy. The railroad to Assisi was built in 1866. So suddenly St. Francis became really popular um, in the United States. So there was a greater sympathy, this fascination, kind of a dark fascination, but also kind of an excitement about it. They did see it as, as a Protestants also saw it as a triumph for them, which is kind of funny. Nice. So sort of along that line, speaking of Europe, you're you're able to use saints as sort of an anchor or window to highlight a bunch of different relationships that shed light on Catholicism in the U.S., right? So relationships between U.S. and Rome, between U.S. and other nations sometimes, between Catholics and Protestants, as we said, and internal debates among uh, Catholics, especially um, the different ethnic groups of Catholics, Irish, Italian, French Catholics. Um, So can you tell us one saint or one example or one saint's campaign that really brings forth a couple of those relationships and how they're being negotiated there? Wow, it's so hard to pick uh, which which one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'll I think I'll I'll go with Francis Cabrini um, and and talk about the relationship between Rome and America uh, because she was a person. So as I mentioned, she'd been canonized in 1946 as the first U.S. citizen to be elevated um, in that way. And I knew just I, long before I started this project, I knew that she was important for that reason. There are lots of parishes named after her throughout the United States. But what I didn't know is that she had become a citizen, mostly for practical reasons. She naturalized in Seattle in 1909. And it seems that her lawyer had advised her to do that because she acquired a lot of property. But Frances Cabrini didn't think of herself as an American. She thought of herself, she was from Northern Italy and um, she was a missionary who traveled um, across the ocean 24 times. It went on ocean journeys 24 times between uh, Europe, uh, the United States and South America. So her being a, a U.S. citizen was more important to U.S. Catholics than it was to her. So for example, I learned Italian to, to do this project and, um, which I didn't intend to in the beginning. Um, but when I read a biography of her in Italian, never mentioned that she was a U.S. citizen. It didn't matter. Um, whereas that's, uh, it mattered a great deal to U.S. Catholics. So, and then as an immigrant, um, Cabrini was, was originally taking care of charged with taking care of Italians in New York, but came to be known as as the mother of immigrants, of all immigrants. And sure enough, Irish American women joined her her community very quickly after her arrival here. And um, she became a way to celebrate the um, Catholic immigrant experience, which is interesting because it didn't start out. I mean, she didn't even arrive in in the United States until 1889, um, by which point, the causes of many French missionaries were already underway. And she didn't die until 1917 um, and kind of skyrocketed through this process, which had everything to do with the fact that she was an Italian. It's that home field advantage I mentioned a few minutes ago. But Americans like to talk about how the way Cabrini had allied herself with the great destiny of the United States and wanted to, um, wanted to, and that they ascribed to her motives in naturalization that she would have never subscribe to herself. So I think she, she became a time to celebrate, um, American Catholics of, of, well, Euro-American Catholics 
ethnic background. And then in 1946, kind of a moment of triumph, um, the United States emerging, you know, after from victory in, in World War II. So, um, yeah, she's a particularly elastic saint. And she gets a whole chapter in the book, um, a whole chapter to herself. Um, Elizabeth Ann Seton is another way I could have answered that question. She's threaded throughout the book. She's in every single chapter. Yeah, that was actually my next question, right? Like you said, several chapters draw on the example of Elizabeth Ann Seton um, from her life to the saint-seeking campaign to her actual canonization in a post-Vatican II situation and then those reactions. So, so much to unpack there. Um, What story of U.S. Catholicism does Seton tell? In other words, how were you able to use her in each of those chapters to sort of narrate these shifts? Why is she so... um, such a good figure for sort of doing that over time. She's she was a wonderful figure to do for doing that. And unfortunately, it took me a while to realize that because I was originally going to treat her in one chapter. And not surprisingly, I got to that chapter and it was a nightmare. And I spent a very long time trying to think about how to do this. And then when I uh, when I decided, no, she's the she's the narrative thread. So she works because um, in terms of that message that U.S. Catholics wanted to send in the 19th century to Protestants, to U.S. Protestants, that they were American too. She was particularly good at sending that message because she had been a Protestant herself and had converted to Catholicism. So they talked about how her eventual canonization would honor Protestants as much. And sure enough, it, it, it sounded kind of funny in the 19th century, but by the time she was beatified, It was in the middle of the Second Vatican Council and Protestants did attend and Protestants did celebrate in an age of ecumenism. So that was so um, kind of the long narrative history. Um, I mentioned Cabrini skyrocketing because she had Italians backing her. Um, Some of the other American saints like John Newman had Italian allies um, in the in his religious community. Seton's cause was really an American project and Americans kept messing up part of the project. They made mistake after mistake and things kept getting sent back and they would forget to send things to the process. So it was kind of American in that way. We think of the United States now as being, you know, very influential. And of course it is in the world and in the church, but really um, it, nobody in Rome really cared too much about the United States. Nobody, well, nobody at the Holy See cared too much about the United States in the late 1890s and, and really well into the 20th century. So they just kind of ignored this process. And then of course, for me, and I think the 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 thread that it maybe isn't the most prominent one in the book, but I think is is the most one of the most important is gender, um, and she her cause suffered a great deal because um, women could not represent themselves in causes for canonization. So her congregation had to work through um, a male cleric, as did all women. Sometimes that worked just fine. Um, almost always the men spent more time on their own candidates than they did on the the women candidates. But in Seton's case, it was an absolute disaster. Um, Someone who just, um, he was a priest in the Vincentian family, which is um, closely related to Seton's congregation. And he was really just a horrible person (laughs) and um, was much more concerned with his glorification than Seton's canonization and um, insisted on absolute control. And it's really a wonderful story of the sisters making a decision to own Seton's story, to be able to tell her story, the story of their mother, 
their spiritual mother the way they wanted to, and in the process, telling their own story. So I really saw strong women emerge in that who eventually won. They won the battle, but it was a prolonged and really painful battle that, that, that divided, um, caused a lot more pain than it needed to be. I mean, that's kind of the, one of the things about you're writing a book about sanctity and you <laughs> run up against so much sin in this process, you know, and so much bad behavior. Um, but yeah, it's about yeah. humans after all. Totally. Yeah. I mean, as a human sort of process, as a bureaucratic process, as a political process, right? It involves all, all of these things, which you which you lay out. Um, so in the middle chapters of the book, you note how Vatican II's effects on saint seeking, um, especially the universal call to holiness, justified John Paul II's record setting rate of beatification and canonization. But you argue that that had mixed results, especially, as we were saying, in, the regard, in regard to women religious. How did people perceive those beatifications of John Paul II in, in different ways? What were sort of the varieties of ways? Well, John Paul II is just fascinating to, to, and what he did to the sainthood process. And I mean, on the one hand, it was so wonderful because he understood far better than any of his predecessors, just how much it meant to canonize a saint from a population that didn't have one. He understood that impulse of U.S. Catholics in the 19th century. We need a saint of our own. So that's part of the reason why he canonized so many, more than all of his predecessors combined. He canonized 481, he canonized, um, 431 people and beatified over 1300 people. So, which meant that Pope Benedict and Pope Francis are now also moving at that same rate. Um, But he also became, he made the process much more centralized. He himself was more involved in it. Um, Certain kind of models, particularly when it came to women, were the people that were chosen and um, advanced. And um, so, so the Second Vatican Council had this so before John Paul II had this interesting effect on women religious, because for many, the call to go back to their founding charism compelled them to nominate their founders for canonization. But for many, and I dare say most, it it made them very ambivalent about devoting time and resources to something that as I said earlier, is a comparative luxury to, to spend this time you know, which in a process which is really for us, for the faithful, not so much about them, when women's religious ministries and priorities changed in the wake of the Vatican, in the wake of Vatican II, to focus on social justice. So there were many women who just didn't want to pursue canonization because they felt the money and time could be better spent. And there were many, still are many, who didn't want to pursue canonization because although since 1983, it is possible for women to be vice postulators to represent their own causes, canonization still involves dealing with a male clergy and hierarchy at every single step. And it's kind of hard to get them to say it. And you can see in the book, I was able to to get some (laughs) sort of quotes from some people to that effect. But it's a dynamic that's really operative. It's it's a very ecclesial process. And the the leaders in the church are are all men. So it's hard to, especially, it's hard to canonize a woman who challenges the notion of kind of an, uh, an obedient woman. And many of the foundresses did. 
Yeah, that's so fascinating how sort of some of the the, the men in, in the process are sort of using the women as, to, again, like you said, to hold up these sort of obedient sort of patriarchal values. And the women who had originally proposed them have sort of their, their priorities had changed. And, and that's that's so interesting. Um, so methodologically, your book makes the argument that we should be taking into account sort of ecclesiastical and lived religious history, um, taking into account both perspectives of institutional leaders as well as people on the ground. Um, so obviously, so I love that. And I love how how um, saints are sort of able to do that. Um, but on the other hand, obviously, sort of the institution isn't monolithic, as you, as you showed. It's, it's internally diverse, lots of different um, priorities. And there's gray areas sometimes especially post-Vatican II, as to who's in and who's out of, of the institution. And the same with the laity, who's who's all the way in and who's sort of not, not you know, officially Catholic. So how did you decide which figures to focus on and which to leave out, like whose voices to take into account? Um, how did you make those decisions? It's interesting. When I started this project, I was completely uh, approaching it from um, American history. I mean, I knew nothing about the Vatican archives. I didn't know Italian. And I just, and, and, you know, this is, this was, I wasn't the first person to write about sanctity in American context, but this is something medieval historians, early modern historians, they know, they know this saints is these litmus tests, these cultural indicators of society. But this was something that was kind of an idea that captivated me. And so I was just going to do my archives, you know, where I could get in, um, what were the most accessible in the United States. And then when I went to Rome for the purpose of Brother Andre's canonization, but I also was able to meet with some mutual colleagues there and visit the Vatican archives for the first time. And that's when I realized, wait, there's a whole other side of the story because you have this toggling back and forth. You have the the causes that Americans propose, but they get sent to Rome and Rome evaluates them and sends them back and sends back this critique. And this, there's this back and forth. And I learned things about U.S. Catholicism that I wouldn't have learned Um if I hadn't taken into account what was happening at the Holy See. I learned things um, by being able to read Italian that I wouldn't have um, learned otherwise. So I knew I was going to focus on Cabrini because, you know, she was the first and all that. Um, And I knew that Seton would get um, um, a fairly large role. But Seton's archives are scattered throughout. Um, her, her spiritual daughters were divided by another controversy in her lifetime that was also, or not in her lifetime, but in the 19th century, that was also related to gender and hierarchy. So that was kind of hard to get into some of those. Um, so I just followed the sources. Um, I probably would have finished the book more quickly had I not utilized sources in Rome and at the Holy See, but I'm so glad I did um, because it allowed me to tell a, a fuller story and allowed me to appreciate, you know, yeah, yeah, Rome does matter. I mean, I think I was I I was educated in a generation of historians that was about, well, it's American exceptionalism and you know the American church is different and what was happening in Rome didn't matter. Well, you know what? What's happening in Rome matters a whole lot and um, it shaped th- this story I tell, but it opened me to the ways it shapes other stories. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, even like as you detail in the book, even if you're reacting sort of against it or sort of even rejecting certain parts of it, you're still so it's still a part of the dialogue, right? Part of the, the ways in which we're thinking about um, ourselves, uh, which I found really interesting. So you say you didn't um, know much about the canonization process before this project. What was the most or one of the most surprising things that you learned about the process as you, as you sort of went through the project? Well, just how 
um, I remember I, I, an early article I submitted um, uh, that I published on this um, project in religion and American culture, I characterized, <laughs> I characterized the process as tedious. And one of the reviewers um, wrote back and, and uh, said, I'm sure that's not true. And I'm sure the people that, that are doing the process wouldn't describe it as tedious. It's probably a joy. And I just, I don't know who this reviewer is, but my goodness, I just want to tell this person, absolutely, the people who work on this process find it tedious. It is tedious. It is paperwork. It is endless. The rules are very complicated. Um, it, it's just, uh, so I think just the complexity of it. I met um, a, a kind of a famous Jesuit, well, famous in our world um, as a historian, but his name was Peter Gumpel. He just died um, in October and he was a Jesuit who worked for 60 years in the uh, Congregation for the Causes of the Saints. And he was one of the few English speakers. He was German born but um, he spoke English. So he dealt with all of the American causes. And he has, he's, he's, he was absolutely brilliant. Um, and he says, you know, uh, I quote him in the book as saying, I am not generally considered to be stupid. And yet it took me six or seven years working in the congregation for the causes of the saints before I began to understand even a little bit the whole process. And that made me feel better because there were times when I thought I am never going to be able to figure this out. Um, and I figured it out enough, um, I hope, to be able to, to tell it. But that was a real challenge. How do I just put enough about the process in the book? Because people want to know but also it, so it doesn't bore them to death, you know? So that was how I had a, I had a, yeah. So that was, that was a bit of a challenge too. And Seton helped me with that. Yes. Yeah. Using, using kind of the examples as you lay out the process and yeah, just what a thorough paper mediation it all is and the, and the, the bureau, the really thick bureaucracy and, and how that shaped access and power and, and how all of that really plays into all of it was fascinating to read. Um, in your epilogue, you detail contemporary campaigns for saints that are embroiled in current conversations about gender and sexuality and race. Do you get a sense that people view these campaigns as, or these kind of saint-seeking moments as more politicized than those of the past? I mean, obviously your book showed that these campaigns for saints were never apolitical, right? Like that's sort of the whole point of showing how all of these different socio-political, geopolitical, transnational relationships. Um, but do you think um, current discourses that imagine our political landscape as particularly polarized right now, how does that relate to current conversations about saints? I think it maps onto the larger story of Catholics in America in that, you know, for until the late 1960s, the major fault lines were between Catholics and Protestants. Not that there wasn't conflict among Catholics, there certainly was ideologically and ethnically, but the, the narrative driving the story was Catholics and the, and the larger American landscape. And then since the late 1960s, then what's driving the narrative is, is polarization among Catholics. So I do think it's not so much, I mean, I, I think Protestants are still very interested in American saints. The a canonization still makes the front, a canonization of a United, a person from the United States still makes the front pages of the New York Times. Um, certainly when Pope Francis visited in 2015 and canonized, Junipero Serra. That was um, that was an American story, but I think in these and there are, there are just so many causes open right now. Um, I do think there are a way in some cases to just advance a particular version 
of the Catholic story. Um, and and in, 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 uh, not always in, in bad ways, some in very positive ways. So for example, the six African-Americans or six black Catholics from the United States whose causes are open, um, that's a way to recognize that these are holy men and women who were venerated as holy within the African-American community during their lifetimes and immediately after their deaths, but did not have causes open again, because they didn't have the, um, the standing, the status to do that. So, um, I teach a class called Sanctity and Society that developed along with writing this book and my students um, for their final paper have to nominate an American saint. They have to make a case for the next American saint. And they don't talk about holiness. I say, we just presume the person is holy. We talk about relevance. Why this saint and why now? And this semester I had three students write about um, Henriette de Lille, well, one student about Henriette de Lille, one about Augustine Tolton, um, and one about Thea Bowman. Um, and to me, that just reflects the, the, the moment we live in now in terms of a racial reckoning, a desire for representation of black Catholics in the, in the, in the, um, canon of the saints. So I think it's, I think it's a good thing, but I think it's just important to, to acknowledge that it's not, it's not all about holiness. Yeah, well, and that's what the book did such a great job of, of showing, right? One thing that really struck me on a broader theoretical level about the book is the way it shows over time how we kind of define and thus construct the political in relation to the religious. So like you're talking about how holiness relates to sort of um, social and, and political reality, right? So how we sometimes imagine them as separate or overlapping or not um, and how it sort of moves. You say in the book, quote, once polarization within the church supplanted marginalization in America as the defining ethos of U.S. Catholicism, favorite saints would convey, convey far less than they once did about U.S. Catholics' understanding of American identity, end quote. Do you think right now there could be a saint-seeking campaign that would appeal across the political spectrum, or is that just simply not the way it works anymore? I think it was always a fool's errand. You know, I mean, the kind of way I, I set the book up, um, I tried to do it in kind of a, it's hard to, to set something up as a mystery when you know how the story ends. But, you know, it was about this quest. Well, first we had the Jesuit martyrs. They were going to be the patrons. But then then it became Cabrini. And then it was, well, not an American citizen saint, but a saint born in the United States. And then, then it was Seton and on and on. Um, but I think it was always... Um, it, you know, to capture the American Catholic experience in all its diversity, there was probably never going to be a single saint that would be able to do that. And really the story that I tell is, is very much one of Euro-American Catholicism. Um, most of the saints that the already canonized are from the Northeast. Um, that does not represent the United States church. It was the power center and the demographic center of the U.S. church for a long time, but it was never all the American church. So yes, I'd be hard pressed if I had the power to kind of name a patron saint of the United States today. I don't, I don't know. I don't think I would do that. I think it would be very, very difficult. Um, now, that said, I have students make compelling cases that it should be Augustine Tolton, the first openly black priest in America who couldn't even attend seminary in the United States because of his race. Um, he had to be ordained in Rome. Um, so I do think there, there are saints that tell a compelling American story, but they don't tell all of the American Catholic story. All right. Final question. Um, what are you working on now? What is your upcoming project and how does it relate to some of the themes that you um, discussed in this project? 
Well, I'm working on a couple different things. For the last two years, I've been directing a project on clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church. So that is a dramatic shift from going to writing about sanctity to really grievous sin. Um, but that's also strengthened my conviction that you know we ignore the institution, the ecclesial structures at our peril. So I think what I learned in the canonization book really helped me understand um, that a little bit better. But what's more fun, um, I've gotten really interested in the conversation, the national conversation we're having about monuments and who is represented in our American public landscape. And the Mellon Foundation published, um, funded a study, a national monument audit um, from the Monument Lab in Philadelphia that mapped through crowdsourcing the top 50, well, it did a lot of things, but the top 50 individuals uh, represented in American public landscape. And not surprisingly, <laughs> they're um, uh, mostly white, mostly male. Um, many were uh, slaveholders. Um, it, it's just a fascinating thing. But there are four Catholic saints in the top 50. Um, there's, uh, uh, the, in fact, the first woman at, at number 18 on the list is Joan of Arc. Um, so it, it's a, uh, a Catholic saint. Junipero Serra, recently canonized American saint, given his role in um, California history. I'm sure that's why he's so high on the list. And also St. Francis of Assisi, who's kind of um, been pretty popular since the 19th century. But so um, in thinking about canonization as a process that selects some people to tell a story that privileges some stories above others. I've been thinking about how this maps onto our national monuments, which is also a process of selecting some people to tell a story that's incomplete. So I've actually been looking at Catholic women who are represented in the American landscape publicly. Um, you know, and there are some, Frances Cabrini, there's been a new statue of her was erected in Battery Park in um, October 2020. Um, there is an effort. The Mellon Foundation, it's not just documenting this, it's actively seeking to transform the American landscape. So I'm actually thinking about Catholic sisters and things like the Nuns of the Battlefield Monument in Washington, D.C., commemorating the sisters who served in the Civil War. Um, you know, not surprisingly, sisters are, are largely absent from the public landscape, except for a few notable exceptions, um, which makes sense because their story was invisible. Even it, they sought invisibility, really. They, they didn't build monuments to themselves. Um, so I'm thinking about um, what stories get hidden, um, who gets to tell the story, um, and how that has affected um, the story of um, Catholic women, including at the University of Notre Dame, my home institution. I um, I'm writing about some of the founding women who are not only not represented in the public landscape on campus, but their stories were actively erased some, from some monuments. So, and I've been teaching at Notre Dame for a long time and I, I knew nothing about that. And I thought, my gosh, if I'm someone who teaches and writes about women's invisibility and I miss this, wow, you know, this is something um, we need to pay attention to. Yeah, Absolutely. So continuing this sort of investigation into representation and identity, um, it sounds fascinating. And I can't wait to have you back on to talk about that project when um, it gets going. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Again, the book is A Saint of Our Own by Kathleen Sprose Cummings. And this is New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. <laughs>